decided to do a little series that I'm calling Anonymous for God. And if you were here a couple weeks back, uh, you were here for part one where we talked about uh, the disciples as an illustration of the problem. Uh, that during the entire three years that they were with Jesus, uh, eating, sleeping, uh, traveling with, listening to him teach, and seeing him work miracles every day, tragically, there was, during that entire three-year period, an argument among the twelve as to who was the greatest among them. And sadly, it went on, as we saw last time, it went on right up until the day before our Lord went to the cross. Literally, on the way to what we call the Last Supper, they were still arguing as to which one of them would be the greatest. And Jesus had answered the question some months before when he knew what they were arguing about, and he said to them, whoever wants to be the greatest must be last. You want to be first? You've got to be last. You want to be the greatest of all? You've got to be the servant of all. And that didn't sink in too well. And I don't think 2,000 years later, I don't think it sinks in very well with our culture still. Um, but we want to we want to try to absorb that and really make that part of who we are as a people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone who's come. Uh, thank you for your word, which is timeless and true. Uh, Lord, would you make us uh, open on the Godward side that we might take in the marvelous truths that you have left for us? Make us different people because we are here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there's a sinful tendency inside every one of us to exalt ourselves, to want to be number one, to want to be first. Or to put it a little differently, um, even as believers, we have a tendency to try to get our significance from what we do for for the Lord instead of from the Lord himself. And that can lead to a multitude of problems. Um, I I got thinking about this a number of years ago, and I decided to conduct a little straw poll. I wanted to find out what the average person in the pews thinks greatness is. Or more specifically, I wanted to find out who do people in the pews, who does the average Christian think is the greatest or are the greatest people in the Bible? So I polled about 200 people, and I came up with the top five vote-getters, um, which were supposed to come in one at a time, but you see them all at once there. <laughs> uh, the top vote-getter was David. Uh, David, the great uh, king of Israel, Israel's greatest king ever. Uh, the writer of most of the Psalms, known as the sweet psalmist of Israel, right? A man, the Bible tells us, that God even called a man after his own heart. Uh, David was the leading vote-getter, not among the women, but he was the leading vote-getter <laughs> overall. Second was Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver, uh, the man who led approximately two million Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, a man who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. An incredible, incredible man of God. He was a second leading vote-getter. Third was Daniel. Uh, And obviously, Daniel, it won't surprise you, the reason people thought Daniel was such a great, great man in the Bible 
was because of his integrity. Uh, probably uh, right there with Joseph as the most integral figure in the Bible. When, when he was in captivity in Babylon, there were several people that wanted to uh, try to frame him or find, dig up some dirt on him to, uh, to disgrace him in front of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. But no matter how they dug, they couldn't find a single thing wrong in his life. We could use somebody like that right now, couldn't we? <laughs> impeccable, impeccable character. Just an incredible man. Fourth was Joshua. And, and largely for his military leadership. A great general, a great military leader. The man who was largely responsible after Moses died, uh, largely responsible for leading, not only leading the children of Israel across the Jordan to possess the land, but driving out the Canaanite people so that they could possess the land. An incredible leader and an incredible general, military man. And lastly, but certainly not least, the Apostle Paul was on the list. Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament epistles, uh, an incredible, incredible man who was uh, first Saul of Tarsus, dramatically converted by the Lord and became Paul. Uh, went from persecuting the church to being the greatest figure in the New Testament church. A man that God used to literally turn the Roman Empire upside down for Jesus Christ. So I think you would agree as you look at this that this is a pretty daunting list. And if you and I, just as average Christians, when I look at a list like this, I feel like, you know, who am I? Who am I? What, what do I have to offer when you, when, you, when you compare yourself to people like this? And I think all of us, frankly, if we looked at that list, would, would feel that way. A sense of insignificance. But I'm going to propose someone to you that, that didn't get a single vote in my straw poll, but someone that I think is the greatest character in the Bible. And in a minute, I'll tell you why. During the war between the states, uh, the southern confederacy did not have any of the uh, military medals that we have today. There was no Medal of Honor. Uh, there was no Silver Star, Bronze Star, uh, not even a Purple Heart if you got wounded. The, Confeder- the Confederacy had decided that uh, it was your duty to serve and that any kind of medals or awards uh, were gratuitous at best, maybe even, maybe even smacking of being ostentatious. So they, they did away with that. Instead, what was, what was recognized in the Confederate Army was if you were an officer or even a soldier and you were mentioned in the dispatches, the letters of your, of your commanding officer, that was the equivalent of a medal. Getting a mention in the dispatch of your commanding officer. You probably know that the highest ranking officer in the Confederate Army was Robert E. Lee. And if we go through all of Robert E. Lee's dispatches, the name that he mentions more than any other was a Confederate general by the name of John Singleton Mosby. And you probably, a lot of you, unless you're a Civil War buff, you've probably never even heard of John Singleton Mosby. But he is arguably, among Civil War historians at least, he's arguably the greatest Confederate soldier next to Robert E. Lee himself. Because because he was mentioned again and again and again and again in his 
commanding officers' dispatches. If you'd allow me to transfer that concept to the biblical realm, if we look at the dispatches of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the person that is mentioned by Jesus Christ in the Gospels more than any other figure might surprise you. That person is Abraham. Abraham, mentioned by my count at least uh, 18 times. Moses is a close second, but he is second. Abraham is mentioned by Jesus Christ more than any other figure in the Bible. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Abraham was mentioned by God in the Bible, mentioned by Jesus in the Scriptures repeatedly because of three simple words. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Why not Abraham? You know, why, why wouldn't we think of him first? Why wouldn't we have put him among those, those first five guys? Well, first of all, he's not the kind of a guy that would seek the limelight. Uh, he's not the kind of guy who got a lot of limelight. Um, and, and the problem, here's where the problem really arises, and that is Abraham never did any of the things that we usually associate with greatness. He was not, uh, he was not a great king like David was. He was not a great leader of millions like Moses was. Um, he just didn't match up with that list. He was not the incredible man of integrity that Daniel was, although Abraham was an integral man, but there was that one slip down in Egypt. Remember, don't tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister, which got him in a lot of trouble. So he wasn't there as far as Daniel's integrity. He wasn't a great military leader like Joshua, and he wasn't a writer of Scripture like Paul. Abraham was famous for three simple words. Abraham believed God. And I want to suggest to you this morning, the greatest thing that any individual person can do is believe God. The greatest thing we can do collectively as a church is to believe God. That is by far the greatest thing that any person can do. You know, when God started working in Abraham's life, and it's kind of, when we look at Abraham's life uh, as God began to reach out to him in Genesis 11, Genesis 12, um, we see that God reaches out to Abraham, Abram, Abram at that point. He's living in a, a land called Ur of the Chaldees, uh, the Mesopotamia Valley area. And God tells him, Abraham, leave your father's house, leave your kin, folk, and your town, leave it all behind, and go to a place where I'm going to lead you. And Abraham starts to go. God is beginning to work in his life. Then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and God tells him, you know what, Abraham? You are going to be the father of many nations. And and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. And as a matter of fact, those who bless you, I'll bless them. Those who curse you, I'll curse them. Through you, I'm going to build a mighty nation, and all nations will be blessed through you. And I'm sure Abraham's thinking, how in the world can this be? <clears throat> and at this point, he still has no, no children, no son. So how, Lord, are you going to make a great nation of me? Well, some time goes by. Genesis 12 goes to Genesis chapter 15. 
And in Genesis chapter 15, God comes back to Abraham again. And And he says, Abraham, I am your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And Abraham finally says directly, he says, Lord, how can this be? I have no heir. Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. He's going to inherit all my stuff. I don't have any kids. So Eliezer gets everything. How how in the world am I going to be the father of a great nation? And the Lord says to him, Eliezer will not be your heir. Your heir will be a son that will come from your own body. And that, and through him, a great nation will arise and all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then he takes Abraham outside, the scripture says. And he says, Abraham, look up at the, up, up, up at the sky. I'm guessing it was nighttime. Look up at the sky and, and count the stars for me, if you can. And there's no dialogue at that point recorded from Abraham. So I'm guessing he just went, you know, look. Implication, Lord, there's too many. You can't count them all. And the Lord says to him, so shall your descendants be. And then one of the sweetest lines in all of Scripture comes out. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, credited to him for righteousness. That's the moment. God gave Abraham eternal life. That's the moment Abraham became what we would call a believer. And about 1,500 years later, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 4. And he wants to use Abraham as a a life-size illustration of what it means to believe God for eternal life today under the new covenant. Now, Paul's going to argue that, and does argue throughout Scripture, that in every age, no matter what period of history we're in, uh, at every time, and from Genesis to, to Revelation, people get right with God, they are justified by God, they become members of God's forever family by faith alone. And that was the case with Abraham. Abraham believed God. The, 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 the word that's used in the New Testament for believe is the exact same word. It's just a verb or the noun form. is the exact same word that's used for faith. One is pistuo and the other one is pistis. They, they're the same word. So no matter what age you lived in, uh, no, no matter when, everybody was justified by faith alone. The only thing that was different was in Abraham's case, did God say to Abraham, Abraham... Here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ who died for you for the, for the gift of eternal life. Why didn't God say that to Abraham? Not rhetorical. Anybody? <laughs> he hadn't yet. He hadn't come yet. Christ had not come yet. So he can't say that to Abraham. So, so instead, he challenges him with this issue about a son, about an heir. And Abraham believes God. And somebody says, well, how in the world can he be saved? I thought you had to believe in Jesus. Well, think of it this way, and I like to try to describe it this way. It's kind of like being saved on credit. If you, if you were to go, if you were to leave here today and go to either King Supers or Safeway, uh, very few people are, say you get $100 worth of groceries, very few people are going to whip out $100 in cash or gold or silver coins. He's not going to do that. 
we use the wonderful thing that we call plastic, right? The credit card, you just swipe it through the machine, and you walk out with $100 worth of goods, real goods. Why do they let you leave the store with that stuff? Well, they let you leave the store with that stuff because the management of King Supers and Safeway and all them, they know that somewhere short a short time down the road, someone, whether it's Discover, Visa, MasterCard, someone is going to make good on that promise of payment. So the folks in the Old Testament, God would challenge them to believe something specific, a promise or whatever, and when they believed him, God would declare them righteous Save them on credit, if you'll allow me to use that expression, knowing that a short time down the road in the line of human history, Jesus Christ would pay the penalty for their sin. So Abraham gets saved on credit, but he gets saved exactly the same way that we do today. And Paul wants to pick up on that. And so he says this, and I want you, you can either uh, look on the, Board up here, we'll have, the, we'll have the verses right there. Or you can open to Romans in your iPhone. And we're going to look at Romans 4, verses 19 through 21. Notice beginning in verse 19. Paul speaking about Abraham. He says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Hold up there for just a minute. I want you to underscore in your thinking these words. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And what Paul is pointing out is is that Abraham knew beyond any doubt, beyond any question, that biologically speaking, he and Sarah were too old to have a child. The baby factory was closed, done. There was... Biologically speaking, humanly speaking, physically speaking, there was zero chance of them having a baby. And Paul wants to tell us Abraham faced that fact. So if, if, if Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child, if they're going to have an heir that comes from their own bodies, then God has to do this. It has to be all of God and none of them. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. He's he's 100 at this point. Sarah's about 90. Verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. And now verse 21, a verse that I consider, by the way, the clearest verse in the New Testament to describe saving faith. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham was fully persuaded, or if you're looking at the old King James, it would say fully convinced that God had the power to do whatever he promised. And God was promising them a son. Physically speaking, biologically speaking, it's impossible. But instead of believing science, instead of believing his own mind... Abraham believed God. And guys, that's why he's the greatest man in the Bible. It's the greatest thing anybody can do, to believe God. Do you believe God? Day in and day out? And Paul's using Abraham here as an example, and he goes on to say in the verses following, that what happened with Abraham was an example for us. 
That Christ died paying our sin debt in full. So that when you and I simply are fully persuaded or fully convinced that when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he paid for all the sin I'd ever commit in my life, cradle to grave, and by simply believing that fact in my heart, at that moment, God gives me eternal life as an absolutely free gift and I will never, ever perish. That's good news, guys. That's really good news. It is free. It is by simple faith. But once you've got that gift, once you've been justified freely, God wants you to keep on believing him. That's why in in the first chapter of Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. And he says, and in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, demonstrated in our lives from faith to faith. Or as the NIV says, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith from first to last, from beginning to end. In other words, God's intention for you and I is, uh, if, if you'd let me use a, a, a birth metaphor, when a child comes into the world, and I've been privileged to be there for the birth of all three of my kids, that first, first breath is critical, isn't it? Uh, our son scared us literally half to death. It was nearly two minutes before they could get him to start breathing. Um, I had panicked. Janine couldn't, didn't even, wasn't even totally privy to what was going on. But he finally, and that was the sweetest sound I ever heard. That first breath brings, bring, brought him into the world. But if he's going to live and grow and develop, he's got to take a lot more breaths after that first one, right? And you and I come into the Christian life by a single breath of faith in Jesus Christ. But God's plan is that we continue to grow and develop as Christians. So therefore, we've got to take a lot more breaths of faith after that first one. The just shall live by faith, Paul says, right? So as we look at Abraham, and again, all of this, I'm not talking about quantities of faith. I'm talking about our view of God. Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do Anything he promised. Here's the point, guys. The point is not that Abraham was a man of great faith, but that Abraham was a man who had faith in a great God. And those are very different things. That's why Jesus could say, if you have faith even as a mustard seed, little teeny mustard seed, it'll work. That's okay. Because it's not the size of your faith that matters, it's the size of your God. Are you convinced that God has the power to do anything he promises? Is your God big enough? Some of you probably have read the the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible. It's got one of the early paraphrases. This is a great little paraphrase. But J.B. Phillips also wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. I wish I could buy a copy for every Christian I know. Because we do, we tend to reduce, because we live in the world, we tend to, over time, reduce God to worldly limitations, which he's not at all. And our God becomes smaller instead of bigger. I have one pastor friend who likes to say this. He says, remember, Garrett, there are are no great pastors and there are no great churches. But there are pastors and churches who believe God and therefore are doing great things. 
It's believing God and it's having a God that's big enough. It's having the real God of the Bible as our true and living God. Quite a number of years ago, um, I had ordered a whole bunch of books from, uh, I think it was CBD, Christian Book Distributors. Um, and I, I got to the point where they would occasionally just send me free books. And they sent me this little book. It, it was, I had never heard of the author. Her name was Gladys Hunt. And the book was called A Persuaded Heart. And I just, it came in the mail and I just started reading it and it grabbed me. I opened it somewhere in the middle. I didn't start at the beginning. I just opened it somewhere in the middle. And she was talking about this very thing, the necessity uh, of taking risks in the Christian life if we're going to grow. And on page 67 of her book, A Persuaded Heart, Gladys Hunt says this, and I quote, God calls us to an adventure of faith, difficult and exacting, but full of new discoveries, full of fresh turns and new surprises. Then why are some of us so small, you ask? Our smallness comes from a desire to play it safe, to never take any risks, to never make a new decision to trust God in a fresh commitment. We look at our own resources and we say, I could never do that. Our scared littleness keeps us in a box. Adventure or creativity, whichever word you like best, always involves risk. It involves a decision. It is purposeful. It is an expression of yourself. Usually, it involves other people. It stretches you so that you end up being more than you ever thought you could be. Here's the line I love. And it adds that special flavor to life that makes you feel like you have a secret with God. Ever feel like that? I hope you have. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Nobody feels that way all the time. But some of the time, yeah. Yeah. You ever, I I, I guess I describe it as the the felt presence of God in my life. And, and, And it's not something that we can call down or pray in our way into or whatever. God gives it when he decides to. But I have found in my own life that the times when, when, when the presence of God is so real that, uh, to quote an old expression a friend of mine used to use, if it feels so real that you could cut it with a knife. Those times come usually after I have taken a step of faith. After I have taken a risk. After I've done something that takes me out of my comfort zone. And the more I do that, the more of God's felt presence I have. The more it feels like, you know what? Sometimes you walk around when, when, when that's going on and I feel like saying, anybody else feel this way? This is awesome. <laughs> this is great. And, and listen if you knew me, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty cerebral guy, especially when it comes to my faith. But who doesn't like the warm fuzzies once in a while, you know? 
It's a great thing. And it's something that God blesses us with when we live by faith. And I don't know what that means for you this morning. Maybe uh, taking a risk for you this morning is, is forgiving somebody that, that you've just, you've had a grudge against for a long, long time. And it's going to be hard to let that go. Let it go and see what happens. See what God does. We're in a brand new facility here. And our neighborhood has noticed. They have. And for, for me, I mean, I, I don't know that many people because we've only lived in Evergreen for a little over two years now. Um, but all I have to do is, I get talking about people. The other day we were at one of our doctors and right here in Evergreen started talking to him. Oh, you go to that church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, what's that like? You know, I see they put up a new building. It opens up a whole conversation. And who knows where the Lord could lead that. Maybe that's what we're afraid of sometimes, right? It might lead us somewhere where we have to say something that might make us a little uncomfortable. Go for it. Go for it. From faith to faith. And the, and, and the presence of God will be with you. Remember what James said simply? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Yeah. Exactly. I'm a long, long time Charles Schultz fan and a Christmas movie fan. It's getting near that time of year where uh, I'll start pulling out all my Christmas movie favorites, lining them up. Um, Janine forbids me to listen to Christmas music until Thanksgiving. I, I cheat once in a while, you know, in the car and get some Christmas music on. Um, but one of my favorite Christmas shows, uh, which I probably watched, I, th- I think it came on for the first time in the mid-60s, 64, 65, and it's been on every year since then. Uh, Charles Schultz has been gone already like 10 years. But I love the Charlie Brown Christmas, and I love the line where Charlie's so frustrated with that play, remember, where he says, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And Linus steps up and says, sure, I know what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And he quotes from Luke chapter 2. It's one of the most beautiful things of, the, of all of Christmas time. But remember, right before Linus does that, uh, Lucy's leaning on Schroeder's piano. And if you know Schroeder, what's his favorite music? Beethoven, right. He's a Beethoven freak. And Lucy's just not impressed by that at all. And she says this. She says, did Beethoven ever get his picture on a bubblegum card? How can you say someone is great who never got their picture on a bubblegum card? And Schroeder is very annoyed, as you can see. Can I draw the spiritual analogy? Spiritually speaking, Abraham never got his picture on a bubblegum card. Not like the other five guys that we looked at. Never got his picture on a bubblegum card. And yet, and yet, if we go by the word of Jesus Christ, he is arguably the greatest man in Scripture. He never did any of the things that we usually associate with greatness, but he is arguably the greatest man in Scripture because of three simple words, Abraham believed God. How about you? How about me? One of the traits of people being who are willing to be anonymous for God is that they believe him. 
And you know what he's promised? He's promised that if we believe him and if we walk with him by faith, that life's going to be hard. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom, right? So you have to believe that someday it's going to be worth it all. Otherwise, why walk this walk called the Christian life? Why bother? There's a lot easier paths in life. But if you believe God, then you're willing to wait for the day when it will be worth it all. And it will, guys. It will. I will never be a great king like David. I will never be a great leader like Moses. I will never be, although I want to be a man of integrity, I will never be the man of integrity that Daniel was. I will never be the great military leader that Joshua was. And I certainly will never be the great writer of Scripture and great church planner that the Apostle Paul was. But I can be, and you can be, an average, everyday, nine-to-five person who simply believes God and is willing to be anonymous along the way because someday it will be worth it all. Father, thank you so much for these incredible men that you put before us and women. Thank you for Abraham and the example that it is. Help us to go from faith to faith because someday, someday it will be worth it all. Convince every believer here that it's always too soon to give up, always too soon to quit. Give us the strength to come across the finish line, not just crawling and scratching, but to run across that finish line. And hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.